Hello, and thank you for joining us. My name is Molly Carmichael with Zonda's Inspirational Leadership Series, joined by the industry's best in all things real estate. These leaders are literally designing our future for many generations to come with new communities, home designs, technology, retail centers, infrastructure, and so much more. This series is about who they are, how they got started, who inspired them, and their journey to the top. So let's get started. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. We are here with Joan Webb, who was previously the CMO for the New Home Company and has a huge history in home building. It's a pleasure to have you today, Joan. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Molly. What an honor to be asked to participate, really. Absolutely. So I want to start with just sort of looking back at your career for those that don't know you or don't know your history, share a little bit about sort of the areas of what you have done with your career and, and all that you've been involved in. There's so much. Okay. Well, you know, I've, I have a theory that unless you're born into or raised in a home building family, you don't wake up someday and go, I want to be a home builder. That was not part, that was not a part of my path. Um, you know, I really thought I'd end up in the foreign service or something along those lines. Um, a very service. Yes, because you know, I, was, cool. I was a human rights activist before I was a home builder. Actually, there were a few years that overlapped. I was a uh, vice chair of Amnesty International in the U.S. And I really thought my path was going to be human rights. Um, and then along the way, life happens. And a very, very dear friend of mine, uh, Lisa Stewart, comes from a family of home building, uh, once called me up and said, I need help. This was in the late 1980s. Uh, Signature Homes was a, a bit forward for their time and they had a design studio, uh, on-site design studios, and they were overwhelmed with hundreds and hundreds of files that had not been processed of people's flooring choices. That was my entry into home building. And from there... So at this point, you're a human activist and your friend says, oh, I'm gonna call Joan because I have a studio issue. <laughs> Well, I was actually, I was a human rights activist for Amnesty International, and at the same time, I had to earn a living, so I was also working in organization development for McDonnell Douglas, um, nice. I was a little circuitous, and she called me and said, you got to come help me, but you know, what's the rule? Uh, don't work with best friends, which I've broken throughout my career. Sure, uh, me too. And yeah, so I took a leave of absence from from what the, my friends called the bomb factory and uh, and made a left turn and joined Lisa <laughs> in the home building business. And uh, Lisa's dad, Dale Stewart, at the time was president of NAHB. So my windows open to things like NAHB and BIA and advocacy for, you know, for our industry. And uh, I never looked back. That was in 1987. And so I really my start was in the design studio business, which is a niche and uh, some builders really embrace it. Others, you know, don't, others outsource it. And my um, specialty was in, in-house. And from there, I had a, a terrific time at Taylor Woodrow, um, now Taylor Morrison. I remember that. Yep. And then uh, a stop, um, which was a, a very fascinating time uh, at Brookfield Homes. 
And then Lang, uh, when Larry Webb hired Tom Redwitz to start the, uh, the Lang Luxury line, uh, Tom called me and I had worked with him at Taylor Woodrow. And, uh, and that kind of brings us up to Lang Luxury, then that fun two years overseas with Omar when Lang sold to the company in Dubai. I went along with that. And then my last chapter, I was very fortunate to be with the new home company from, from the very start. What are the key things you look for in great leadership? Like, what does that mean to you? Uh, I think number one is leading from the heart. And what do I mean by that? I mean, compassion and compassion does not mean weak. It means understanding the human element. And uh, that's super important for me. And, uh, and, and if you don't have that, it's kind of hard to fill in with everything else. I let me, think- Let me ask you one question on that. Sure. Why did you say it doesn't mean weak? Because I think when, um, when people hear compassion, they think, um, you know, who knows, maybe that's my, you know, my upbringing or my story when, when people would sure. say compassionate, uh, does that, that doesn't usually first and foremost think of strength. Gotcha. Gotcha. For me, a good leader has to start with the compassionate and the human element and leading from the heart. Uh, and then, yes, it has you, you lead with that and then you get to have the strength that gives you the ability to make tough decisions. So it's, yeah, that exudes strength to me. Like when I right. hear, when I just hear the word, it like feels strong. To well, me. good. That's, yeah. that's awesome. That's why we get along so well. <laughs> and, uh, so compassion, strength, freedom, freedom for me through of how I wanted to be managed. And then in return, how I wanted to manage and lead my teams Freedom was essential to me. And I have no idea. I don't know if that's because my parents also raised me with this question authority thing, um, but they did. And so the fr freedom, what do I mean? Yes, everyone, I mean, great leaders are going to have their opinions and they can't just let their people do whatever they want. But I always needed freedom to, if I was in the position to lead, to do what I thought was right. And yes, give me all of your opinions and give me your data and, and persuade me uh, if it's a, an opposing view. But in the end, if you have me in, a, in, a in, in the role of leading, then you better let me lead. Otherwise, it, that's not going not gonna to work. So those, the, those are kind of my, those, those are my guiding principles. So freedom in, in a way that it's almost sort of like, if I want to draw outside the lines because of this, that, or the other, I can do that. And you're going to trust me to do that. Right. right? Yes. I, I and, totally get that. And it, it tended to be not just around people choices. And for the most part, I always worked in, in organizations that really did trust my instinct, but it was about pushing, um, pushing and taking risks. And as long as I had a compelling, you know, argument or story, uh, I'll never forget walking in a big conference room full of men. And I was introducing the notion of doing landscape. Now, I mean, isn't that crazy? We can barely get like the shower tile to be correct in a house. And here, 
you know, Joan wants to introduce fully customized landscaping designs. And this was at Lang, um, at Lang Luxury. So starting price back then, it's hysterical. Yeah, a million dollars is not exactly luxury today. Um, <laughs> and it was. And I had, you know, I actually had done my homework. I just didn't fly by the seat of my pants, which I often do. And I covered, you know, risk and and contract and um, DRE requirements and lender, I had it all packaged and I sold it. And that was that was freedom to let me actually do something that had never been done before. Um, same thing with like trap fences. When I came, you know, came up with the, that notion that I never wanted to see a trap fence because if I had to trap someone into coming into our home or staying in our model five minutes longer, um, what's that about? And, and I think a lot of people rolled their eyes and said, well, and I, the, always in the preface of taking risk was, hey, if it doesn't work, you can change it back, right? right? right. The, what the heck? So that for me is, you know, those are examples of freedom that I was given in my career. And, uh, and I think really, really gave me a huge amount of satisfaction in my job. So, so you worked for, with a lot of different companies, albeit really notable, great companies. Uh, which characteristics of the, without saying the names, right? What were the characteristics of the best companies you worked for and the characteristics of the companies you were like, oh, this is just not going to work. <laughs> and well, did you have really any that weren't going to work, but, but touch on that when you say like, I just couldn't do that. Uh, okay. I think the the positives, first of all, three out of the five companies um, that I felt like I made an impression in my career, three of the five were led by basically similar, if not the same person. Um, and so I knew what I I knew what I had and the trust was incredible. So how lucky, you know, how lucky was I? I grew of of course, through the years by going from design studio and then moving myself into um, sales and marketing and design. Um, so I'd say that those companies were, had compassion, had strength, um, had a, in just a craziness for quality. And uh, that was something super important um, to me because Five, 10 years later, I always like to drive my neighborhoods. And if they looked like crap, I would cry. I mean, I just felt like if we were developers. I get that. I totally yeah, get that. If we were developers and builders, we better leave. We better be great stewards of the land. I mean, we better leave that community a whole lot better than, than we found it. And so that quality um, and enduring design is what, right? When we go drive our neighborhoods 10 years later, the design is, is kind of what sticks. Um, in the more challenging companies that um, I had the pleasure of serving, uh, yeah, they just didn't have those fundamentals for me. Um, obviously, my experience overseas was amazing, and I worked with world-class architects and designers that I would never have even been in, been able to touch. Um, I was going to ask you about Dubai, like what that experience was like. Um, when you have a when you have a hairstylist that you know by name in a foreign country in the Middle East, maybe it's time to leave. Um, I was <laughs> way too much, way too much time there. Um, crazy, exciting, often um, harrowing, and wanting to tear my hair out. Um, 
standing, you know, in a meeting in Cairo and being sent by the chairman of the company to figure out why a JZMK designed home in outside of Cairo doesn't look like the home in Irvine, California, and then standing in a meeting and not being able to be, I had to have a man speak for me, okay? Because culturally, they did not want to hear from an American, a woman, let alone the chairman liked to tell everyone in the company that I was Jewish. Um, so yeah, I, that, that was a heck of an experience. So I, I, had, I actually made a friend with a guy who was an architect by trade and he worked for the company. And so I would just whisper to him and, and then he would present my, you know, <laughs> that was like a company I once worked for too, just for the record. <laughs> I won't use any names there, but yeah. <laughs> but you know, the notion that um the notion that the chairman of Amar had of of buying John Lang and really taking that human capital and experience and spreading it throughout the world was was not a bad idea. And I'm sure, you know, on some level that was part of the part of the good part of the things that Larry saw in wanting to make that deal um, because really you wow. could spread what was what we developed in Southern California as truly a leader in it was all about design for these guys they came to Southern California they fell in love with places like the Grove and and uh, everything they saw in Irvine everything they saw in Crystal Cove Fashion Island and they just wanted to duplicate that not just in Dubai, um, but but in their sphere of influence, which is basically the Middle East. So, um, so why would they spend all that time having you travel to Cairo and yet you don't have a voice? Yeah, because he didn't believe. You know, they wouldn't believe me that they that they wouldn't listen to me because I'm dispatched by the chairman. Um, oh yeah, I used to tell him all the time, are you crazy? Don't ever send me there again. They're not gonna listen to me. I mean, I can give you my personal report. He just wanted probably boots on the ground and a personal report. Um, same thing in you know Morocco, I, I, I'll never forget. I was, in the, I was in the president of the Moroccan division's office. It's 11 o'clock at night. I'm literally falling asleep because I'm so you know, jet lagged. And, and the, meeting had, the meeting hadn't started yet. Oh my God. The way business is done is so, so different. Decision-making, nobody can make a decision. Um, and that's kind of a, that's a, could be a cultural, uh, uh, sure. company culture thing of no one can make a decision because it might be wrong. And I was one of just make a decision and move on to the next. Chop, chop people. Let's get this done. Let's get so, it done. So, so you're in this foreign country, you're there to do what you do. And you just have to filter it to someone else and then they present it. Is that how that, it that was? That was very specific in Egypt. That's the way okay. that worked. Um, in Dubai, that was not the way it worked. I had full, you know, if the chairman said this three towers of 20 floors looks like, you know, a hospital inside, go make it, go make it look pretty. What does that mean? It meant, you know, and this was a recession here, it was the Great Recession. So I was able to keep designers and suppliers um, and a lot of consultants busy helping me. You know, we'd send over, we'd send over containers full of silk trees and paintings and chairs. And then suddenly the 20 towers, you get off the elevator and you're not in a, 
in a hospital, you're suddenly in a residential, you know, a residential tower, those kinds of things. Um, you know, he'd send us in to redo uh, hotel lobbies that didn't feel right for him. Uh, I worked on the Burj, um, the Burj, which is now the Burj Khalifa, um, on their apartments. And then Lang Luxury actually had the floor 108, 109 as a as the highest residential unit in the world. Um, we did the architectural design. Uh, we never got to execute it. I don't know what are, what's going on those floors now, but um, wow. yes, it was a great experience with, and really um, life, you know, th those kinds of life experiences you can't get any, anywhere else. And it was a little crazy time. If you ask my girls, they will say, yeah, mom wasn't around a lot in those years. And, um, but, you know, it was a recession and we do what we think we need to do. And it was a very happy day when I heard from Tom and Larry and Joe Davis and Wayne Stelmar that they were putting the band together again for the new home company. So that's that's pretty exciting. That's yeah. pretty exciting. Well, let's let's transition a little bit to women and leadership, because I think it's a perfect transition coming out of that. As you were kind of growing up through your career, how what are the key things that you sort of face, challenges, and what are some kind of things you would share or recommend for women, you know, in their career, not even just starting out? Because I believe this series isn't just for the young leaders, but it's for leaders like me who are like, oh my God, Joan Webb is like a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> like how do how well, here's do the that, deal right? I, I wouldn't go to Saudi Arabia uh, <laughs> I wouldn't even consider it because my threshold was that if I needed a man to sign my exit visa to get out of the country sorry not going and I used to get into this oh, all the time with the chairman. yeah I mean now as a as an American tourist it was um I did. I didn't need a man, but that was my example because if I was a Saudi woman, a woman, I could not leave the country without my uncle, father, brother signing my exit visa. So that was like my my protest. Okay, I like so that. not. So and, rule number uh, one. <laughs> so rule number one: Don't go to a country that you can't visit on your own um, behalf. Uh, yeah. So challenges. I honestly honestly, Molly, have been so blessed in my career that I worked with men that that always were uplifting for me and opened doors. For I mean, sure. how fortunate am I? And we talked a little bit offline about, um, about culture, about company cultures. And, um, you know, I still hear the term boys club culture. And I was blessed. And I think I also made decisions that enabled me to work at companies that did not have that culture. And if anything, open doors. Um, so my challenges were, um, were more in winning over, you know, hearts and minds of construction guys, uh, of, of understanding that we could have a high level of personalization in these multi-million dollar homes and still deliver it on budget and on schedule. And, um, and once, once you win people's trust, and the only way you can do that is by proving yourself, right? Having the right systems and places and actually doing as you say you're going to do. Um, then, it, then, it was, then it was easy. And to, to have the opportunity to work with the same team through many, many years, that, 
that's like the best. So I feel super fortunate that I had those opportunities to grow. And, you know, it was a decision way back when um, really at Lang um, and part of their leadership program, um, what did I want to do? What was my next step? I mean, I ran sales, marketing and design for the luxury division. Did I want to run a division? And it was a very tough decision for me. But in the end, I decided that I loved my, I loved what I did. I did I not agree. need to be I in agree. the land deal. I did not need to, you know, I, I did, there were things about that particular job. And I look back and think maybe I made a mistake not going for it. So blah, blah, blah. I could be that further up. I mean, I, I met my goals, but what became clear and why it became my passion to speak up for women in the business um, was because that I saw so many companies around me that my colleagues did not have those same opportunities. So when I, um, when I stepped in as, um, as chair of the Orange County um, BIA, you know, you get to create your own, um, your own agenda and, and your own platform. And so it was very, very clear. I had just lost my, my late husband in a, in a bicycle accident. Um, so um, smart streets, um, safety was a was a big part of my platform. Women in home building was my other and the next generation. And so what was born out of that was um, I wanted to put together a women in home building conference and I wanted it to be knock your socks off. I wanted it to I thought at the time only last five years because the goal was very clear. I just wanted the conversation to start in boardrooms of what is standing in the way of women breaking through into the C-suite. That was my goal. And I said, if, it, if, it, if we can't even just start talking about it within five years, then I failed and we shouldn't carry on with the, with the conference. Um, so yeah, the first year we had 300 people at Bowers Museum. We've grown it to 800 people. We didn't stop it. Yeah, we didn't true. stop at five years. The conversations did happen, but it what the voices came back to us said was this was such a special day. Don't stop it. Keep you know keep inspiring us. Keep us moving forward. Keep the voices up. And um, yeah, and then probably the most rewarding thing that happened was in its first year, um, we had a CEO who, um, for the first time, invited all the women in the company to lunch. And he sat there and said, I'm going to be like on this panel at this women's conference. I need to, I, you need and to- And who talk. was it? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I, if- <laughs> <laughs> that's okay that's okay and um, it's, it was not my husband um, and he ended up getting these huge messages he had no idea that women were facing some of the challenges that they shared with him um, and so it was so exactly on what our goal was for the conference that it, it just I could have stopped there and I felt like I would have won, you know, won, won the lottery. I won the lottery. So here, so, so just to kind of recap, so here you were a woman in a, a much more male dominated world and you've had lots of champions in your lives and, and you haven't really had to face maybe that sort of male, female thing that you're hearing from, you know, colleagues or friends. Um, 
and yet you're hearing this. Let me ask you this. What do you hear is sort of the most common complaint or common challenge? And what do you think are the most common solutions or in all of this sort of uh, the leadership sort of summits that you've had, which have been phenomenal, by the way, like what are the big takeaways as you're sort of going through some of this? And, and to some degree, I think it's an education, both directions to your point in your first summit, it is like, no, this is real. Like, this is what's going on. What are some of those takeaways? I think, um, and what I hear, and it's today, and it was, you know, eight years ago, is uh, it's a boys club. What does that mean? That means for whatever is going on in the, in the organization, women did not feel comfortable in that they could be a part of the team, of the inner team. So what does that look like? That looks like the guys always go for lunch and they never invite me. And let's say they're a, you know, a senior um, um, planner, what, what, whatever level in the organization. I've had so many women tell me, I'm never invited. They go out for drinks or they go out for lunch. And then that's this feeling of I'm not good enough or the messaging is I will never be able to be that guy who gets much more time with the leaders of the company. So how will they ever see the gifts that I'm bringing to the table if they don't know me like they know all those guys? Right. That I think is probably the most typical um, challenge that, that I see, at least in our business. Um, I think some leaders are just unaware that that impacts people um, when they see the same group go out to lunch together every day. It's just a whole inclusion, right? That's why it's it's not just equity, it's it's inclusion. Um, and there's a lot of words that, that kind of couch that. And so what are the solutions? It's always just sit down and talk, right? Talk to your manager, talk to your vice president, talk to the president if they have an open door policy, which in this day and age, if they don't, they're crazy. Um, and uh, that's always my solution is you've, they may be so oblivious that they don't know they're doing that. And right. it's always the question to ask is, what can I do to take the next step? I, I don't think even with working with the best guys in the industry, I, I think there was only one occasion that I got a raise and a promotion that I didn't ask for. Maybe yeah. one. It and was at Taylor Woodrow. Yep. I was I totally agree. Vice president. Every a single, including Larry Webb and uh, and the new home company, I had to I had to ask for for every job, you know, every promotion, every raise that I got. And, and I, and I always felt really loved and respected, but right. that doesn't mean I didn't have to ask for what I wanted. Well, it's, it's really interesting. So two parts to that, the sort of going to lunch and being part of the, the boys club, how much of that is like formative, right? Like when you look at sort of, you know, grade school, high school, college, like guys are going to hang out with guys, girls are going to hang out with girls. And then there are those times where you come together. Right. And so it's, it's a very natural thing, I think for guys to hang out with guys to go grab a bite or whatever but is, is it that or is it do you think it's a selective choice like hey he or she isn't smarter so we're not including them I, I think it's really um unique to the organization and the ones that I've seen it's not just that the guys like each other because they like the gals 
they just, I think it's, it's an oblivious factor of, of understanding what their actions, you know, what the impact is on, on those around them that might watch this and then assume it's a boys club and assume that they can never take that next step up. I mean, you're one of those people, Joan, that it blows my mind how much you've done, how courageous you are, just your natural leadership ability. It's born in you. And so, so as, as you go back to when you were younger, whatever age you want to pick, were you always this way? (laughs) Oh, I don't, I don't know. You know, my, my parents, uh, really raised, I have a brother and a sister and I'm the baby, uh, really raised us to just find whatever it was. They didn't care what it was. They didn't care if it was underwater basket weaving, as long as I, (laughs) so was passionate about it and did the best I could in underwater basket weaving, they didn't care. They just wanted me to find something I was passionate about. And I think that really, really, really stuck with me through my life. Uh, and when I look back and think about that, my, my entry into the business was on the design studio side, which some people just discount and go, Oh my God, what carpet and, you know, pillow <laughs> welts. Uh, it, you know, the studio really touches every segment of the building process, sure. Absolutely. From, right? From buyer experience to very much integrated with construction to customer care and to, you know, in the end, the entire buyer experience uh, and then for years to come. And so I think that really helped me get such a grasp on, on everything. And I think about in, so in 1987, I remember walking into a conference room at Signature Homes and um, and Bert Silva was part of that process. So I, I got oh, to really? Bert from oh, the very beginning. Yes, with her. both of our stops on, on our way. Nice. And the only women that I saw that had the gravitas and kind of some power and decision-making were all our consultants. They were all women that were entrepreneurs that had their own business. I remember Sandy Keating I mean, I, in marketing and, mm-hmm. and designers who own their own interior design firm. And, you know, kind of that was the mold. And the women in the office were all in support roles. And I kind of I do remember thinking, well, that's pretty interesting. I did not have a desire to have my own company. Uh, you know, I was 27 and uh, I just took it all in and just thought, I just really want to be at the head of the conference room table. That I that was something <laughs> so, that very so that much was in your mind from the very beginning. Oh, like yeah. you talked it. Okay. Yeah, I wanted my voice. I wanted my voice heard. And I think maybe that from my human rights background, it's all about getting your voice heard, right? When governments sure. mistreat their citizens, who has to speak up? You have to speak up and be heard. So I think that kind of taught me, well, wait, I think there's a better way of doing something. I just want to be heard, right? Right. So if you ask, has it always been with me? That desire has has always been with me. I totally get that. I mean, I want not even just to be heard, but I want it to always be fair. Like I'm going to fight for the fair thing. Right. right. And, and that's really interesting. So that's always kind of been ingrained in you from the beginning. Now you're the youngest of three. Mm-hmm. Was there any of that dynamic in your family too? I mean, like, darn it, I want to be heard amongst this group of five. Or oh, whatever. I couldn't even compete. My, my brother, who is now a retired psychiatrist, uh, he was going to be the doctor of the family, right? Every nice Jewish family has to have the doctor. <laughs> so thank God he took that one. 
Uh, my sister is a very talented artist, but has chosen a very different life path. And for the last uh, 35 uh, years has lived uh, in Israel, a very different path. And so it was me. And so they always felt I was the baby. I always got away with everything. I didn't have it tough. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that was kind of the signal. My, I think my parents were shocked that I actually got through UCLA uh, <laughs> and they just knew I would do something, but they were never, never sure. So no, I was the, I was the baby that probably um, got the easiest in the family. But all three have done something really remarkable. I mean, that's kind of very interesting when you look at the three paths you've taken, they're very different, but quite remarkable. Comple completely different. Yes. That's yeah. kind of neat. So, so if you were to kind of look at sort of your relationship with your parents, would they say you were the, the one who bought everything? Or would you say that? So like my parents will say like, boy, you were a fighter from the beginning or, <laughs> you know, like you've always been sort of, you know, athletic and, you know, I've always sort of pushed to win kind of a thing, but in a, you know, in a competitive spirit. Yeah, I mean, my mother often, who's 95 uh, and still with us, uh, she often reflects that my best friend growing up on our little cul-de-sac in Orange, California, when they're actually orange groves across the street, uh, was, was a young gal. Her name was Debbie, and she had a huge disability. I didn't know she had a, you know, talk about yeah. being colorblind. For me, she yes, she didn't walk like I walked. Um, but my mom said I was her biggest protector. And I do remember That's like, awesome. chasing the kids away from her. Um, so I, I think that was, that might be a, a, a little part of the path of when you talk about being fair and being heard, uh, that's yeah, that, that was, that was what, uh, I think kind of, uh, drove, drove me. Yeah. I love that. But as you were younger, sort of growing up, did you have any sort of like role models or people that you sort of looked up to that, wow, I'm going to be like that one day or any of that? I, you know, when I, I think about childhood heroes, uh, for, my, for me, I think they really formed later uh, in college. I, I did have a professor at UCLA that um, really made a huge impression on me. I was the student that never went for office hours with professors. I was afraid of them or I don't know, right, uh, right. too intimidating or something. And one particular totally. professor um, actually took interest in me as a student, which I had never had. I mean, you're in, right? You're in classes with hundreds of people. And this was, this happened to be a, a small um, class in my field of study, which was political science. And he took an interest, uh, was always asking me what my plans were, what, what, what was I interested in? And he became pretty pivotal uh, for me as I developed, uh, I think, as an adult. And I've always looked up to him. I've stayed in contact with him. And, um, and he really changed, he, he changed my life. He, he was um, the one that introduced me into the world of human rights and, and basically taught me that I could change the world. And it just takes one voice. Um, so that, that, that was pretty cool. Uh, you know, I had, we, Larry and I joke around about, you know, we're going to have a dinner party someday and who would we invite to our dinner party? And um, we, we banter back and forth between our sports friends um, and our political friends. And yes, Michelle and Barack would be at our dinner party. For sure. 
for sure. sure. Um, Bill would, I would have Hillary too. Larry disagreed with me on Hillary, but I would really like to have Hillary at the dinner party. I would too. Um, Kobe for sure. I mean, that would be miraculous, but, um, but we have, we have discussions about that all the time. And that's basically, so who is it that has impacted our life or that we look up to? That's so interesting. Well, let's, um, I want to do a couple of things about you first, and then we're going to jump back to women's leadership, because I think that's such a big part of not just your story, but I think it's an important thing to talk about today. But as we talk about you specifically, um, I'd like to ask you a couple of just personal questions. So favorite, uh, favorite pastime, what do you and Larry love to do today? We golf. Isn't that just really? Have you always been a golfer? Oh, are you kidding me? Oh, that's, I can't, oh like, I'm just God. not patient enough for golf. No, I'm sorry. no. You know, <laughs> it, it's so funny looking into what the next chapter is, and I'm not going to call it retirement, but that's what we are. Uh, when you're a woman and you have not only a career, but you have a family and you have a husband, I just think, I think we are at a bit of a disadvantage because we do hold a little more responsibility, usually on the home front, uh, to balance. And I could sure. never. Oh, for sure. Golf? Are you kidding? All these guys would go out golfing like on Mondays and Fridays and cut land deals on the golf course. Like really? Like when all day you- Saturday? That, right. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Uh, was, I was blessed with a husband that did not. Uh, my late husband John did not was not a golfer. But no, Larry introduced me to golf. I thought. Uh, why not try it? It's it's always in beautiful places. Uh, it could it be is. something that Larry and I could do. So I thought, oh, I'll give it a try. Oh, for heaven's sake. I'm a <laughs> I mean, I'm not good, but I love it. I love that we spend so much time together doing it together. We love traveling and playing and we just really, en- we enjoy the time together. And I, I be, I become a nut. So yes. Golf. Yeah, <laughs> what so. about, what about Favorite place that you've ever visited? Because you, I know you always travel quite a bit. Ooh, ooh, favorite place. Um, it usually involves a coastline, and then it's even better if it has a golf course on the coastline. So we have our favorite places. Um, on the Big Island is a really special place for us. Uh, the Dominican is a special place for us. Um, Punta Mita in Mexico is special. We're uh, we're about to take a three week uh, trip um, to Asia, um, but probably the place that impacted me the most um, was our trip to to Africa. And I cannot wait until we get back. We um, were really blessed to be able to go. It was right before the pandemic, and then we got a phone call saying you got to get out because this pandemic is shutting down the world. And we literally were like one of the last flights out of Johannesburg. Uh, to come home. And so we missed some things, but the people mm-hmm. in Africa are, um, are, are probably the best people I've ever met in my life. And I, I would love that. Botswana is Zambia, Mozambique. I mean, these places are, 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 are so beyond stunning and, but okay. And the animals, of course, animals are amazing. Sure. It's the people, it's the people. And I can't wait to, can't wait to go back. Yeah. That's so, that's so cool. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, we're going to switch to your favorites. This is always the hardest question, but, <laughs> but for you, I'm going to ask you like, what about favorite projects that you've ever worked on? Do you have one? 
Oh, it's, so, <laughs> it's so hard, Molly. Well, I would say in the in the more recent history, in my more recent history, I would say Meridian. And you helped me, you helped me with that consumer research. And we'll never forget what those people said, um, you know, in that, in those uh, focus groups about storage and about everything about life. And because that was a very male buyer, it was hysterical to watch. So for those that, that aren't familiar, uh, Meridian was a very, very high-end attached product in uh, Newport Center, circling Fashion Island. And um, we couldn't get a lender to partner to partner with us on nobody. They were going to be the highest priced, you know, condominiums in Orange County. And they have views on Newport um, Country Club and, and, and Ocean. And it turned out so incredibly handsome and successful. Oh, so and, well done. Um, I'm very proud. I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm proud that it was basically a design build by um by our team and our contractors but really our our design studio designers took every single one of those buyers through basically a design build process and had never been done like that before um and i'm really really proud of the results that um you know that came about so that how, was go ahead how many were moved down buyers from the all, surrounding all, area all of them so, so you know what was the most remarkable takeaway for me on doing those groups was I remember when we were looking for the audience to invite to those groups and it was like, would somebody from Big Canyon really move down here or Newport Coast? And I mean, I've never ever in my life done groups where I've had more people try to hunt me down and figure out how to get to Joan so that they could buy a house and be first on the list. I mean, it was like people were like offering, I'm like, no, no, no. Not affiliated with the company. And I started an interest list for you. I'm like, I'm just going to like lob you over to Joe. But I just remember thinking like, wow, I could not believe the response. I think we were all a little surprised. We were all a little surprised. And and we were, if you recall, we were under a huge deadline. We needed, we couldn't get anyone out on the site during construction, but yet we needed to close homes, you know, within a a very tight window and basically pre-sale and get them through the design process in, in a very tight time frame, And we did it. Um, it was hysterical because I personally met with some of those buyers up front. It was all, they, it was all men. Men wanted to leave the big house and the women p- preferred not to because it was all about storage. So the men would come to the first two meetings. And outdoor space, so I remember being a very- Outdoor space too. That guys would come, they would get hooked and what a great lifestyle. Then they, later we'd see the wife and then they would get, um, you know, we obviously, we made some architectural changes to to accommodate just enormous closets in an attached product. (laughs) Um, to get them comfortable with the storage and the lifestyle. It was lifestyle. And for whatever reason, it was an easier jump for men to make from a single family detached to that at that point in their lives. It was fascinating. And uh, and all in all, um, the people that have bought Meridian have definitely made more money than we ever made as a company on the the project because the resale resale values are crazy or crazy. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, yeah that was that was beautiful. Yeah, that's what home builders do. We make money for our we make money for our buyers, not so much for ourselves. That's <laughs> true. It's true. Bill Pulte said if he bought one house from every project he sold, he'd be much richer. Right. <laughs> I was like, right. Oh, well, and I think that's why, and we talked about this just before our discussion here is the importance of science and art. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, you know, is one more important? Um, I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Which do you think is more important or is either one more important? Um, in our industry, I think we need both. Uh, you know, we learned early on that we could not just design to every everything we would hear in a focus group. And we were crazy about sure. consumer research, as you know. And, um, and if we did that, we could really risk the success of the project. So we had to get all that in and then get all of the science in and have it out and figure out what the best way forward was. Um, so I, I really think we, we need both. Um, what scares me a little bit about what I see today is that, um, once again, I mean, how many recessions have we worked through, Molly? I mean, right. so many that I see once again, and I'm so damn disappointed that companies are running away from some of the best practices that we learned in this last great market. And, and it's, it's sad. What do I mean by that? I, I have heard and of course, I'm more in tune with the design studio side of the business and sales and marketing um, as well. But, you know, companies are are throwing out the design studio and choice. It's much better. It's much faster. It's blah, blah, blah. It's more efficient. It's this. It's that. People don't want choice. I have heard every excuse in the book, <laughs> even at what I would consider luxury housing levels to just give them packages. It's faster. They like it better. Blah, blah, blah. And and technology. So both on choice, I see people running away from it now that things are a little tougher and they want it more operationally efficient. Um, and, and then technology, I think we are, I think we're blown. I think we're still light years away. I do think the pandemic gave us all an incredible learning opportunity of how on a dime we had to change our business model and how refreshing was that to actually be able to convince people, okay, we don't need the models open. We don't need the salesperson sitting in the models, but we do need to figure out how to give our people access, right? On their own time. And let's get all these Matterport tours out there and get all of this technology in their hands. And we actually did it as an industry. Hallelujah. That's great. Don't lose that. And I think a lot of those lessons are not being lost and are continuing. But I think we are woefully, woefully behind on introducing technology into how we build our homes. And I'm not talking about like the lighting and the, you know, keyless pads and blah, blah, blah. I'm talking about um, especially in, in affordability um, and in the higher end is how to introduce faster, better ways of, of building. And we know the answers are there and we always compare ourselves or we don't compare ourselves to the auto industry of how do they come out with these new models and better <laughs> technology every year and somehow they figure it out and we're just a little bit of a dinosaur on that. So, And then on that note, going to the design center piece of it, 
So, so we have lots of numbers on that. And, and there are, a, there's a huge number that say, I want to be able to pick every piece. And then there's a huge number that says, I want packages. Let me ask you this. Is there room for both? Can you say like, Hey, we've curated these packages, but you can also have your individual choice if you can do all that. Right. So what are the advantages and disadvantages to both? In a perfect world, um, you, you have both for certain price points. I, I, I think in the luxury market, don't even bother because they're going to tear your, they're going to, they're going to tear the packages apart, no matter how beautifully curated, no matter if I, you know, hire Philippe okay. Stark to put it together. I mean, just, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter, but well, they'll go design center. Correct. Um, but in, you know, in move up housing, the idea of not giving an a la carte menu along with the curated packages to me is just a huge miss, not just on profit. If you do it right, it's all about having the systems. And when builders say you're costing me 10 days, well, guess what? Then the system is not put the, the design people that have not figure done it out. to figure it out and get it on time. That was always my mantra. Do not cost those guys a day. Otherwise we're done. We don't have a job. Um, and that's a great answer because that is financially driven, return on investment driven, and yet customer driven. And, and so the customer driven part really, yes, it's customer driven, but it's really builder driven because I can tell you, Molly, for all that customization we did, we had one of the lowest can rates in the industry. And that was because people fell in love with their homes. They were emotionally invested. And to top it off, it was the damn landscaping that actually got them most invested and really least amount, the least amount of cancellations because it's done, right? Your home That's is awesome. done and you move in. Um, so I really think it's it's that person, that key to personalization. Yes, you're making your buyer feel good that it's their own and they've put their hand on. And, and sometimes there's really special needs. You have a special need child. You need special needs in your home. What builder can embrace that and go, we're going to do everything to make your life better. I mean, yeah. how cool is that? Oh, that totally touches my heart. So, yeah. It's, it's doing both. It's it. I understand people like packages. Um, I also think that don't lose, don't lose it all in your efficiency about choice. So let me ask you, as we wrap up, I'd love to ask you, who are your inspirational leaders? And I'd love to have, you know, one that is like female inspirational leader, and then just given our discussion on women in leadership, and you've had such a huge role in that. And then um, just kind of, you know, who inspires you today and why? Oh, well, I would, um, I know this has come, come as a huge shock um, for people, but my husband um, not a shock at all. Well, Amazing. When, you know, when I, before I worked for John Lang, people would say, have you ever heard Larry Webb speak? And oh, I like, just... no, I like, I never heard him speak. It was at a time in my life where I was not involved with the BIA or not going to conferences or who knows I was raising two daughters and being crazy. And, and, um, and people would just go, oh, he's like, you need to meet Larry Webb. Right. So Larry at that point in time would meet with any new employee um, that would come into the company. And, you know, he had plus a thousand plus employees. And, and I, he, I came into his office and um, he didn't ask me a question about my career. And I'm like, who is this man? Like he didn't ask me one freaking work question. He only asked me personal questions like, 
What do you read? What do you do? What, what, you know, what's your history? You know, I don't want to hear about work. I only want to hear about you as a person. And I'm like thinking this guy cannot be for real. I walked out of that uh, and telling my husband, you know, John at the time, I, I, I am sure I didn't get this job because he didn't want to talk about, you know, my career. Well, of course he didn't want to talk about my career because that's who Larry is, right? It was all about the person and making sure that the person was the right fit for the company and, and how inspiring that was and how it kind of changed, I think, how I viewed, um, I mean, I always felt that getting the right people on the bus, you know, thank God for Collins, for Jim Collins um, and that brilliant, you know, parody is you got to get the right people on the bus um, and, and then listening to Larry through the years and watching him, at, it was all about doing the right thing. And yes, I had, I had been with great people. I mean, um, I'd follow obviously Tom Redwoods to the ends of the earth. I did through three companies and, um, and what a great partnership because he was so brilliant, is brilliant with his eye and his knowledge and his demeanor and his professionalism. Talk about being lucky to work for the kinds of men that I got to work with. Um, he does have a deep demeanor. Very he does. Sweet. Very just sweet. and and cared. He was the first person on my doorstep when I lost John. Um, oh, yeah. I'm not going to get emotional on that one. Oh. Um, so to work with those kinds of people, how incredibly fortunate am I? But Larry's inspirational ability is something that um, I, you know, I can only aspire to be as inspirational as he is to people. Um, and yeah, and to have our stories then end up where where we're married, that's a whole nother. We would have to have a cocktail. <laughs> that could be a whole nother podcast series, right? But I do also want to mention a woman in my life that that was very pivotal was um, Patty Carmichael. Um, and I don't know if I love Patty. Patty. Yeah. Yes. So Patty was head of sales and marketing while I was head of design at Lang luxury. And she suddenly decided I'm ready to step away. And, um, what did that mean? It, it meant she came to me and she said, Joan, you have so much more to offer. You need to take on my role. And I'm looking at her going, Oh my God, are you kidding? I never thought about that. I'm not a broker. <laughs> and, uh, and she worked with me. She was my mentor for many, many months in the trends. That's a nice lady. And she believed in me. So again, somebody believed in me that I could do more. And she taught me a life lesson. And that is, I love term limits. So I just think that if I don't get out of the way, no one's going to be able to come up behind me. How, how is Megan going to be, you know, CMO someday if I go into my grave? I also happen to think that sales and marketing does have an expiration on it. You have to be young, you have to surround yourself, you have to understand pop culture, you have to understand everything that's going on. I never, I, agree. I always thought if I'm in my 50s, and I'm still doing this, I'm ancient. Well, here, you know, <laughs> I stepped away at 61. So I kind of pushed that envelope. <laughs> huge. I mean, that's why I stepped away from the women's conference as chair, I just felt that if I was true to my word of making pathways for women, that I got to get out of the way. So Patty was a, Patty was really important to me too. So really fortunate to have those kinds of leaders in my life. That those are both. Yeah. 
great leaders. I, I don't think you could have picked two better ones. So that's pretty great. Well, Joan, I, I just can't thank you enough for your time and just spending this time. I could talk to you for 10 hours. <laughs> and I, I, I would tell you my big takeaway, there's so many takeaways I have from today's discussion, but I would say the biggest takeaway is probably believe, right? So just kind of believe in your people, uh, believe in yourself, mm -hmm. um, but also just the power of believing and letting people know that they can do it. I mean, from your professor early on, your parents even earlier on to all these mentors and leaders in your life, yes. just yes. giving that person, frankly, that encouragement. Um, it's all about believing, I think. And, 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 and that goes into so many of the things we discussed today. So I just, so many people believe in you, girl. I mean, <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you for spending the time with me. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. Thank you again for joining us. This is Molly Carmichael, and I hope you enjoyed this series. Please hit like if you like today's broadcast and subscribe if you'd like to hear more from the best and the brightest in our industry. Take care, everyone, and I hope you join us again next time.